Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It is Insect Week and National Pollinator Week and the first week of the buzzing, humming summer months. So today on Forum, we're talking about monarch butterflies, the milkweed plants that sustain them, and other local pollinators. Western monarchs, like far too many insects, are in trouble. An astonishing number of species are declining or already extinct. We'll tell you why scientists think this is happening, what's up with our monarchs, and how you can help preserve these beautiful creatures and their ugly cousins, too. Then at 940, we'll talk about the burgeoning creative Taiwanese food scene here in the Bay Area with our own Luke Tsai. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Western monarch butterfly population has fallen by 99% since the 1980s, largely due to pesticide use and habitat loss. And the butterflies that have survived are changing their behavior in unexpected ways, remaining in the Bay Area over the winter instead of heading to the California coast from October to March. In response, conservation groups like Oakland's pollinator Posse are working to restore habitats by planting native milkweed. We'll discuss why important pollinators are disappearing and what can be done about it. Joining us are Terry Smith, co-founder of Pollinator Posse. Thanks for coming on. Great. Happy to be here. And Arthur Art Shapiro, professor of evolution and ecology at UC Davis. Welcome to the show, Art. Good morning. Terry, let's start with you because there is a legitimate mystery right now occurring here in our state with an iconic species, and I want to walk our listeners through what's really happening. Um, But let's start with the basics. So tell me about the life history of monarchs generally. Uh, Well, Oh, uh, Terry, yeah, we'll start with you. Thanks. Um, There are actually two main populations of monarchs in the United States. There's the eastern population. Basically, the Rockies is the dividing line. And the eastern population migrates between Mexico, the mountains in Mexico, where they overwinter, and up to the as far as the Canadian border, and then back for the winter. That's multiple generations making that migration. Here in the West, um, our butterflies come to the coast in the winter. There's upwards of 300 sites along the coast. Um, and they're there in the winter because it's that Goldilocks situation of not too warm, not too cold. They can stay in a state of diapause or hibernation, conserve their resources till the weather gets warmer, 
And then um, in the spring, they fly out um, east and north um, as far as Washington state and as far east as the Rockies. And then in the fall, they migrate back to the coast um, to overwinter. Got it. Um, so, and again, that's a multi-generational migration. So by multi-generational, you mean that like to complete that loop, it's not just one set of monarchs. It's a, it's a series of succession of generations. That's right. It's four to five generations. So they come out of the overwintering site, they lay eggs, that, that group matures, they migrate on farther. Some migrate farther right away. Um, a lot of this we're not entirely clear on um, because they're a moving population. Um, but we're getting reports right about this time of year. They're getting to Washington and Oregon, which is very exciting because last year there were very few sightings um, in those states. And we're seeing a little more this year. So that is encouraging. Dr. Shapiro, uh, I want to come to you because you've been engaged in basically a 50-year-long research project, which is how we know a lot of these things about the Western monarchs. Um, can you tell us just when did you get started on this and, and what do you normally do when you're tracking these monarch populations? Well, I should explain that I am not a monarch specialist. And the monarch is not a special focus of what I do. I have been tracking entire butterfly faunas at a series of sites across California beginning in 1972. And we are tracking everything, all species of butterflies, the monarch just being one of them. The reason why I am involved in these discussions is because we have such a long run of data, and they are data for the breeding season rather than the overwintering season. Historically, it's been easiest to keep track of monarch populations by censusing the overwintering ones along the coast because they're all aggregated in one place and they're not going anywhere. But during the breeding season, they do move around constantly, so data are relatively sparse. And by sampling every two weeks along a transect across the state throughout the year, we've accumulated more data on monarchs during the breeding season than anyone has anywhere else. So that's where I get involved. And you, for years, saw many monarchs. So like, give us a sense of like, sort of the scale of how many monarchs you would, you would run into, uh, say, you know, in the 1980s. Well, I don't have the data handy right here, but I can say confidently that one would routinely see monarchs at all of one sampling sites at the appropriate seasons, the numbers would not be huge. Monarch numbers on the West Coast have never in historic time been anywhere near what they are in the Midwest and parts of the East. So the monarch has never been one of the most abundant butterflies on the West Coast, but one could be confident of seeing them. Not anymore. And what do we know about why this is a distinct population, these Western monarchs? Are they, it's the same species, right, as the, as the Eastern monarchs. So what makes them distinct, and why did they develop this sort of behavioral uh, distinction? Well, you raise some interesting points. We know from molecular genetics that the Eastern and Western monarchs are not separate populations from an evolutionary standpoint. They are exchanging genes. 
and we know from some individuals which have been marked and recovered in the course of their migrations that occasional western monarchs go to the eastern monarch wintering grounds and vice versa. So they have not differentiated that level, but they behave quite differently in terms of seasonal breeding cycles. And um, Terry, let's go to you. Let's switch to the urban ecology side of this. So what what plant do these monarch butterflies need, right? Because it's basically one plant, one butterfly, and they have a sort of symbiotic relationship. That's right. Well, they have, um, I always say that caterpillars are the original picky eaters because for each species of butterfly, there's one plant or family of plants um, that they can eat. Some are a little more generalist, um, but the monarchs are locked into milkweed. Um, and there are a few different varieties of milkweed, um, a few that are native and a few that are non-native and have been brought in from um, other places. And, and that's the only food the caterpillar can eat during its growth period. So that's where the adult butterfly lays its eggs. Um, and then the caterpillar proceeds to eat for a number of weeks and then goes into chrysalis. And then for the adult butterflies, we really just need nectar plants. Um, but one of the ongoing issues is winter nectar because with climate change, the butterflies are out and about um, a longer period of the year. Um, and we're great at having flowers in our gardens in the summertime, but the early spring and the late fall and into the winter they also need nectar, um, as do a lot of other pollinators, including bees. So um, describe for me, where did milkweed, generally speaking, grow um, before people started to plant it? Um, well, I think it was pretty wide ranging in California, not directly along the coast um, near the overwintering sites, but certainly it was here in the East Bay and continuing into the valleys and up into the mountains, um, different varieties and different spaces. Um, and um, in this, in our area, in the East Bay, it would be the narrow leaf or fasciculares or the speciosa or the showy that would have been common here. And in recent times, um, in response to declining monarch uh, population numbers, you've been encouraging folks to to plant milkweed and, and not just you, but a, a variety of other sort of conservation groups. And how, how has that gone? Um, there's actually been a lot of milkweed planted. Um, unfortunately, a lot of it is the tropical non-native milkweed. That's what um, the big box stores tend to carry. Um, it has a brighter yellow or red flower. So if we're looking at gardening for our aesthetics, some people like that better. Um, so that's been pretty broadly distributed, the native not so much. And there's actually a version of the native Californica, um, which hasn't been um, bred for commercial use, which we're, um, uh, I know Fish and Wildlife, I talked to them yesterday, has got a project going to try to get that out and distributed because it comes up earlier. And as the monarchs are leaving the overwintering sites earlier because we're having these warm spells uh, in January and February, that milkweed is up. The native milkweed goes dormant in the winter um, and comes up in the spring, um, whereas the, the non-native does not. Um, and so that creates some problems that it's around at times and it tends to um, accumulate disease because it doesn't clear itself each year by going dormant. 
We're talking about the plight of pollinators with Art Shapiro, professor of evolution and ecology at UC Davis, and Terry Smith, co-founder of the Pollinator Posse. What are your questions about the Western monarch or other pollinators? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, Art, I want to talk about what you saw last year. Um, we have about two minutes before we go to break here. But I want to talk about that, that last year seemed to be really uh, an apocalyptic situation for the butterflies in your research areas. Well, to be perfectly frank, we are in the fourth year of monarch apocalypse. Um, I have not seen a wild caterpillar. And mind you, I am in the field 260 days a year. There are not too many people who are out in the field that much. So I see milkweed all the time. I have not seen a wild monarch caterpillar for the last three years, and I have not seen one yet this year. There was a report of several larvae at one site near Davis earlier this year, and by the time I got to the site, there was no trace of them. That's the only report of breeding here this year. As for adults, I've been seeing 8, 10, 12 a year instead of 8, 10, or 12 a day. Mm. So monarch numbers are exceedingly low at the places where I go. Well, we will be back to try and answer the mystery, not just of what has happened to our Western monarchs, but the strangeness of their behavior now in response to all of this population pressure Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back. We're talking about the plight of pollinators with Art Shapiro, insect ecologist at UC Davis, and Terry Smith, co-founder of the Pollinator Posse. And monarch numbers have been declining. And here's where the story really gets wild. Last year, we obviously know it's COVID times. And Terry, you started to notice that different kinds of reports were sort of coming in um, of both people wanting to raise uh, monarchs and also reporting different kinds of data about them. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. Part of the Western Monarch Advocates Group, and um, they asked me to do a report on the status here. And normally in the Bay Area, the monarchs come through in the spring on their way out. And then we see them again in starting in September and October, that last generation coming back to the overwintering sites. 
And last year I was watching in my own garden that um, I was having eggs laid every day starting in the summer. And then we started getting calls like crazy um, from people. And of course, people were home with COVID. So that was one of the factors. Um, but they were talking about all the monarchs they were seeing and all the eggs that were being laid and all the caterpillars and how to take care of the caterpillars because they wanted to. Um, and so we actually put out a survey eventually because I wanted to provide data and not just anecdotal information. And we found that, yes, the monarchs were here all summer. They actually continued into the winter time being here breeding and not going to the coast. Um, and that a lot of people were rearing them and a lot of people were rearing them indoors, um, which is an area of concern because if they're being, I, I mean, I've done it, um, we just keep learning things, but um, monarchs get their cues for what time of year it is when they're caterpillars from day length and temperature changes. So if they're being reared indoors, they're not going to know that it's fall and it's time to migrate and um, they're not gonna come out in diapods and ready to do that. So that's an area of concern. Um, so we really wanna discourage um, that kind of rearing for sure. Um, and there is also concern when you're rearing, um, we certainly know about super spreader events now, um, when you gather a bunch of um, creatures that are normally spread out over the whole state into one spot, you end to increase the pathogens and the predators as well. And there's a disease that monarchs get, for short, I'm just gonna call it OE, um, which transfers um, when they're sharing the same um, milkweed plants. And so rearing, although it feels like we're doing a lot to help them, um, really isn't, it's really can be detrimental to the population and the migration as a whole. So that's an area of concern. But in general, we're seeing this again this summer, I'm seeing eggs laid every day in my garden. And those are the reports that we're getting from the Bay Area. I just find this so fascinating. It's just the the complexity of ecological engineering, you know, distributed across the, the whole metro area. Um, let's go to a comment here. Daniel writes, the big story is that Western migratory monarchs are one to two years from extinction. Another interesting story is how the system is handling that realization. They've mostly been in grief denial, literally still planting trees for them to use years from now after they're extinct. Now people are just starting to come to terms and plan emergency actions to save them this year while we still can. Art, let's ask his questions to you. How many years would you guess until Western Migratory Monarch is completely extinct? And what emergency actions are being done right now to stop that from happening? Question number one, I do not have the slightest idea. We know that insect populations are very volatile. They can respond strongly on short notice to appropriate cues. For example, monarchs had been in decline on my transect for years. And when the drought set in, the five-year drought that we just got over a few years ago, their numbers went back up almost to where they had been before. And then as soon as the drought ended, they crashed again. Nobody predicted that. Nobody quite understands why that should be the case. But it may be that the populations will come back regardless of or in spite of whatever we may do. So I can't answer that question. As for the second part, you know, if you are a physician 
and you have a long-term patient who is in obvious decline, and you have been unable to find the cause, and it seems obvious that the person is going to die, but you have no idea why. What do you do? Well, you feel helpless and you want to do something, and maybe you'll prescribe something as a long shot, even though you know there's no good reason to believe it will work. Well, that's basically where we are vis-a-vis California monarchs. We don't really understand, despite claims to the contrary, why they're in decline. There is no convincing evidence that there is any shortage of milkweed as a host plant. You can plant milkweed all you want. It won't do any harm, but it's very unlikely to do any good if that isn't really the controlling issue. So we want to do something, and we don't really know what to do. It seems clear, although not rigorously proved, that climate change is an important factor in monarch decline, and it's operating in a number of different ways. So given the broader scope of the climate change issue, perhaps the most effective thing we can do is not monarch-specific, but is on a much broader scale to work for political solutions that will ease the climate crisis. Art, how does it feel, someone who's devoted 50 years of your life to these insects, to, to be watching them declining so precipitously? Let's just say it's not a heartwarming feeling. You know, during the COVID crisis in the last year, most of the restaurants and bars that I have hung out in for decades folded. They're gone. I don't have anywhere to hang out anymore. And I feel the same way about my research. It's basically going away, and there's nothing I can do about it. I just wish I could understand better why the butterflies are going away. Because it's not just monarchs. There are other species that are much less familiar, much less publicized, much less charismatic, shall we say, that are in worse trouble than the monarch. And it has nothing to do with milkweed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to bring on Dr. Angela Laws, an endangered species conservation biologist at the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. And Angela, the question I want to ask you is just, what are the prospective causes? I mean, we know that at least one of them probably is the increasing use of pesticides uh, over the last, well, really century, yeah? Yeah, the, our best guess is that there are several factors affecting monarchs and other butterflies. So it's habitat loss, climate change, like uh, Dr. Shapiro said, pesticide use, um, disease, all of the, the usual suspects. And so I think um, Art is right. We have to pressure our representatives of all levels of government to take meaningful action on climate change. I also think we need to get a handle on pesticide use. Um, so what's Xerxes doing to try to encourage that? So we have a pesticide team. Uh, we do a lot of work with farmers to create habitat for pollinators and um, help them manage that habitat in a way that's going to reduce pesticide risk. Uh, we also, we conducted a study actually with one of Art Shapiro's former students, Matt Forrester, a few years ago, looking at the amount of pesticides in milkweed plants around the Central Valley. And so we collected milkweed, 227 plants. We collected leaves from 227 plants from natural areas, agricultural areas, 
um, urban areas. And what we found is that every single plant had pesticides with an average of nine different pesticides per plant. And so this is an issue that I think we really have to get a handle on if we want to protect um, pollinators and other, other wildlife. Do you draw any lessons from what's happened with the monarch for your broader sort of future protection and recovery efforts of other pollinators? Like, of course, bees, the most important. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that when we do work to create habitat for monarchs, because people care about, about these butterflies very much. And so there's a lot of interest in creating habitat and creating pollinator gardens. And I think the good news is that when we create habitat for monarchs, it's going to benefit many species of pollinators, many species of bees. The work we do um, in natural areas and in agricultural areas are gonna support many species of, of pollinators. But I do think you know a lot of the factors that are most likely causing monarchs to decline, such as climate change, such as habitat loss, pesticide use, disease, are also things that are going to be affecting many species of, of wild bees and butterflies as well. Let's bring in a caller, Maximilian in Sacramento. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Go ahead. What's your question? So I was calling. I have a home-based nursery, and I work a lot with community gardens. I was asking, where can I find the California milkweed to grow and propagate and become part of the pollinator posse in my neighborhood? <laughs> Terry, do you want to take that? And what other advice, even more broadly? Well, I'll would tell you, you first. Yeah, I'll tell you first of all to join the posse. You just have to. You just did. Um, but um, in terms of finding Californica, I, it's probably going to be a year or so before it's commercially available. Um, you can follow our website or our Facebook group, um, and we'll be certainly putting out information about that. But I know they're just now gathering seed, and then they've got to propagate and get it out to nurse, you know, wholesale nurseries and figure out how to propagate it. So there's going to be a little bit more time. But thanks for going in that direction. And in the meantime, uh, nectar plants, nectar plants, nectar plants. And we have some lists on our website that are helpful. Can you give us just a few nectar plants? I mean, I'm going to plant some myself, seeing I can join the pollinator posse right here live on the show. Um, what are the nectar plants <laughs> I should be planting? Um, Basilias, verbenas. Um, if you're focused on monarchs, there's a Mexican sunflower called tithonia that they really love. Um, trying to think what else. Um, Yarrows are popular. If you just think of the big umbly type flowers that they can land on. Um, but like I say, we have um, both a color-coded list and a, a high hits list on our website under resources. Art, I want to direct a, uh, a comment question to you. Uh, Jan writes, what does the professor mean by wild monarchs? Aren't they all wild? Discuss the chrysalis stage. My daughter has milkweed and many caterpillars in her backyard that do reach the chrysalis stage, but often we find them later still hanging on a black chrysalis without having emerged as monarch butterflies. Why, why does that happen, or what's going on with this? Okay, first let me interject that there is no better nectar plant for monarchs, especially during the fall season, than True asters, not Chinese aster, but true aster, including Bontonia. They go absolutely ape for them. By the way, I have never in my entire life seen a monarch visit Yarrow. But to get back to uh, your question, 
If the pupae turn black, there are two possibilities. One is disease, and if a pupa turns black and doesn't hatch, it's a goner. The other is that it's parasitized. There are insects known as parasitoids, which lay their eggs in or on other insects, such as caterpillars, and then eat the host animal from the inside out. So you could have a parasitoid. In that case, there's normally an exit hole that may drip from the exit hole where the parasitoid left the now-dead host and went off to pupate or emerge itself. So, excuse me, the OE disease, which was mentioned before, can cause pupil failure, but usually the adults make it to the adult stage and then are too weak to expand their wings properly, and they end up as cripples. So a black pupa is usually an indicator of disease, but it might be an indicator of parasites. Got it, got it. And I might add, by the way, that the parasites, the parasitoids, as they're called properly, are the gardener's best friend in terms of controlling plant-eating pests. And many people plant plants that are attractive to parasitoids to attract them to the garden. And that specifically does include umbles, things like carrot, queen anne's lace, anise. Those things are very good for attracting parasitoids to your garden, but that may include parasitoids that attack your monarch larvae. Mm, I see. Let's um, bring in caller Dan from San Francisco. He wants to talk about the state budget. Hi, thank you. Alexis, another great show. Um, I want to say I'm honored to be here with, you know, Terry and Art and our good colleagues from Xerxes. These are folks who we all need to applaud for the work they're doing. Yesterday, a colleague told me um, the story of how she was in a meeting of monarch specialists when the latest count numbers were released, which showed 2,000 down from, down from millions for the Western monarch territories. And, um, and they, all these scientists, hard-boiled scientists, they all, they all just started crying. This is tough work. And, um, and I think a lot of us are actually in kind of a denial, kind of maybe a grieving denial. And we haven't yet jumped into action the way we did with condors in the 80s when we were down to just 13 birds. And I remember a huge controversy between those who wanted to go grab the survivors and save them from lead poisoning and those who didn't and were, were uncertain and, and just couldn't act. And, and we need to do something similar for monarchs. We need a monarch rescue. And fortunately, there's a, a budget going on in the Capitol right now, and good, good assembly members, uh, Phil Ting and Nancy Skinner, are in the driver's seat. And, and it looks like they are going to fund a variety of protections and investments in saving pollinators. And hopefully one of those is to do what we did for, for condors or do what we do for salmon, to, to pick up the mothers, help them have their babies, and then drop the babies off where they belong, using scientific practices, avoiding the disease, not home gardeners, but, but conservation institutions. So I just want people to know about that. They can reach out to Nancy Skinner or Phil Ting and thank them for their support, encourage them to support it more. And, and it's, we're just beginning on this. We don't know the science of these things. We cannot allow analysis paralysis to stop us from acting, but we still need to figure out why all of these organisms are dying, gotcha. why we're facing an insect apocalypse, and how long it'll be before it's our turn. Dan, thank you, Dan. Thank you for that perspective and the legislative uh, possibilities there. Um, Terry, I want to come to you just with our last uh, couple minutes here. Do you, do you think you're going to ultimately be able to save the Western monarch? 
Um, I don't I don't think the butterfly will go extinct. It's really the migration that we have great concern about. There's some speculation that we'll end up with a resident population in the Bay Area, much as this happened in Florida and uh, in Southern California, where they're just around all year round and not migrating. Um, so that's one possibility. Um, and there are, um, to the caller's remarks, I know that I talked to Fish and Wildlife this week. They're working on restoring the overwintering sites. That's one of the issues that they have really degraded over time. Um, they're also working on the idea of perhaps doing something, a, a coordinated rescue, but of course that would have to be funded. So hopefully legislation will go through so that they will get the support to do that kind of work. Thank you so much. I'm want, hopeful. Oh, you're hopeful. I'm um, hopeful. I uh, want to end just with a, another hopeful comment. Bruce writes, I saw a stunning light blue butterfly recently at Duncan's Landing, north of Bodega Bay. It was the first time I've seen this type. I think it may be a mission blue. Hopefully it won't be the last for people there in Bodega Bay. We've been talking about pollinators with Archipiro, professor of evolution and ecology, UC Davis, Terry Smith with Pollinator Posse, and Dr. Angela Laws, endangered species conservation biologist with the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. We'll be back with Taiwanese cuisine after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.